Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Monday, November 6th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nicole Tam. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Today the high will be in the mid-60s, and it stays in the 60s for the next few days before dropping down to around 50 degrees. Lows in the evening also are in the 40s and then go down as the week continues into the 30s. On our front page, fundraising costs grow at Boys Town. This is part of a series of articles written by Des Moines Register uh, reporter Lee Rood. Number one answer, beat Joe Biden. That comes from an Iowa poll. And at the bottom of the front page, job seekers fighting Des Moines Public Schools over background checks. Here's Nicole with our first article. Rachel, thank you. We'll begin with the Iowa poll. It's a register exclusive since 1943. Headline for that, again, number one answer is beating Joe Biden. Likely GOP caucus goers agree on what matters. This is from Galen Beckerrier from the Des Moines Register. The ability to beat President Joe Biden is the quality likely Iowa Republican caucus goers most frequently pick as extremely important for a presidential candidate to possess, and it isn't even close. A new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll shows that when presented with a list of desired qualities for candidates, 74% of likely caucus goers say the ability to beat Joe Biden is extremely important, with an additional 16% saying it is important. Only 9% say it is not that important. While fewer caucus goers emphasize the importance of candidates' approaches to foreign policy, their personal faith and their openness to bipartisanship, they see the ability to oust Biden and take back GOP control of the White House as the top criteria. That's according to poster J. Ann Seltzer. The October 22nd to 22nd to 26th poll of 404 likely Republican caucus goers was conducted by Seltzer and Company. It has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. These findings comes as former President Donald Trump demonstrates a commanding lead among a few of nine Republican candidates. 62-year-old Maxwell resident Bob Prichtard says that I feel like he could win, he said of Donald Trump. I travel a lot around Iowa, mostly rural, and I am confident that his support is super strong in those areas. Prichard says he believes that in a rematch between Trump and Biden, the former president would win. Assuming that the trials he's facing don't take him down, he does plan to caucus for Trump. Sorry, we're going to switch pages to the continuation of the article. All right. 
Poll respondent Edward Walter, who is 58 years old of Hamburg, says it was critical that the Republican nominee to be able to defeat Biden. He says he has no concept of what's going on most of the time when he's up there speaking. Walter is supporting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's just an old guy that needs to be gone. Amid multiple ongoing overseas wars, likely Iowa Republican caucus goers indicate a desire for candidates who can affirm the U.S. presence on the world stage, even as they place a priority on focusing on home. Asked about belief in a strong American role in world affairs, 54% of respondents said that such a quality is extremely important when evaluating candidates, behind only the ability to beat Biden. An additional 39% said it is important, with just 7% saying it's not that important, the lowest of any quality listed in this poll. In addition, almost all likely Republican caucus goers assign some importance to a candidate who has foreign policy experience. 45% of them said it is extremely important. Another 45% says it's important. Brenda Christian, 65 years old of Tracy, who is planning to caucus for Trump, said it is important for America to be strong in international affairs. Christian said, "We need to have a strong president who isn't afraid to use the powers that our military has. Doesn't really want to use them, but he's not afraid to use them, and that's what we projected for the rest of the world." But a focus on domestic issues and spending, which Trump labels as his "America First" agenda, is a priority for many Republican caucusgoers. Asked about the belief that America should focus at home rather than overseas, 49% of them said such a quality is extremely important in a candidate, and others says 30 per, 38% of them says it's important, and 12% answering that it's not that important. Christian said many people in this country misinterpret what the America First agenda is about. It's about keeping our country strong. It's about doing what is fair and right by our country, like in trade deals. She said, "We have been taken advantage of for so many years." Susser says it's not necessarily a contradiction that a majority of likely Republican caucusgoers see this as extremely important that a candidate believes in a strong American role in world affairs, while nearly half of them—that's 49%—percent say it is extremely important that a candidate believes in a nation focusing at home rather than overseas. Christian continued on to say, "I think it's reasonable, given the way that these are phrased. They didn't have to choose one or the other." They could just say they're both extremely important. Presented with two approaching candidates can be can take to governing. More likely, Republican caucusgoers are receptive to those candidates that's open to bipartisanship than those willing to stand for Republican goals without compromise. Half of those likely caucusgoers said in a candidate's ability to work with the opposite party to make Washington function is extremely important. An additional 38% says it's important. When asked about a candidate who will fight for Republican priorities without compromise, only 33% of them said it's extremely important. An additional 44% listed it as important. However, 22% said such an approach is not that important. That is the highest rate of any quality that's listed. Diana Lamphere, 70 years old of Center Point, says she's supporting Senator Tim Scott. She believes a candidate's ability to reach across the aisle is critical for functional government. She says we're never going to get anything accomplished if people keep going hail to the party. Everyone's got to march the drum. The only time anything's going to get done is when somebody compromises. That is what the whole Constitution was based on: was compromise in a lot of places. 
Likely GOP caucus goers were asked about several other qualities that candidates might possess. When asked about a candidate who can be the adult in the room, 51% says that quality is extremely important. 37% say it's important, and 10% say that's not too important. 2% did say they aren't sure. Lafermier says that such an approach is important to earning her support, citing Scott's good control on his temper, and added, "I haven't seen him lose his cool yet." As Scott and other Republican hopefuls continue to court Iowa's evangelical voters' block, 36% of poll respondents say it is extremely important for them that a candidate is a person of faith. 45% say it's important, and 19% say it is not that important. And while the ability to win in a general election against Biden is top priority, fewer potential caucus goers emphasize the ability to win the caucuses themselves. 33% say that it's extremely important. 48% say it's important, and 19% say it is not that important. Trump, who won the 2020 caucuses as the incumbent with no real challengers, placed second in the 2016 caucuses behind U.S. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. In the recent cycles, candidates who performed well in or won the Iowa caucuses have not won the nomination. That includes Rick Santorum in 2012 and Mike Huckabee in 2008. And real quick before we end the story, just want to give you some context about the Iowa poll. It was conducted again between October 22nd to 26 for the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and MediaCom by Seltzer and Company of Des Moines. It was based on telephone interviews with 404 registered voters in the state who say they will definitely or probably attend the 2024 Republican caucuses. Interviewers with Quantel Research conducted 3,028 randomly selected voters from the Iowa Secretary of State's voter registration list by telephone. The sample was supplemented with additional phone number lookups. These interviews were administered in English. Responses for all the contacts were adjusted by age, sex, and congressional district to reflect their proportions among voters in this list. The questions are based on a sample of 404 voters likely to attend the caucuses. They have a maximum margin of error. A plus and minus four and a four point nine percentage points. So that means that if this survey was repeated using the same questions and the same methodology, nineteen times out of twenty, the findings would not vary from the true population value by more than plus or minus four point nine percentage points. Results based on smaller samples, respondents such as gender or age have also a larger margin of error. A note here: We're publishing the copyright Iowa poll without credit to the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and MediaCom is prohibited. Rachel, thanks, Nicole. Job seekers fighting Des Moines Public School over background checks say they were rejected despite rehab efforts. This is by Samantha Hernandez and William Morris of the Register. In 1995. 19-year-old Vernon or Keith Robinson made an ill-thought choice that followed him for years, pulling a police officer into Des Moines, Bird, Des Moines Birdland Pool after the officer had ordered him to get out of the water. He pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault, followed by other run-ins with the law. In 2014, nearly 20 years after his first arrest and 12 years after his last, Robinson failed a Des Moines Public Schools background check for a paid position as an assistant varsity girls basketball coach at Roosevelt High School. Robinson said the district never considered his rehabilitative efforts or letters of support submitted from staff and community members 
even though he was already a volunteer coach for the team. That lack of consideration for applicants' efforts to rehabilitate themselves is at the heart of a long-running class-action lawsuit involving 90 black job applicants who are suing the Des Moines School District for discriminatory hiring practices related to background checks. The district recently changed its long-standing background policy when Des Moines Public Schools' new superintendent, Ian Roberts, announced in October that officials were reconsidering some past candidates who were initially rejected based on background checks. District officials have not said whether the change and the ongoing lawsuit are connected, and the district continues to litigate the lawsuit. Robinson says he struggled for months with depression over the employment rejection. He said, I didn't go to games for a minute. I didn't watch basketball games for a minute, and the worst part about it is my daughter was in school playing basketball. So so not only did I let myself down, I let my daughter down. Starting with the swimming pool incident, Robinson's background check revealed several misdemeanor convictions over the years, with the last occurring in 2002 for a concealed weapons charge. That last arrest and conviction was a turning point for Robinson, who decided he needed to become a better role model for his five children. The offer of a paid coaching position at the school he graduated from felt like another step forward. After the district turned him away, he took his case to he took his cause to the courts. Robinson filed his suit in 2017, arguing the district's policy against applicants or employees with non-job-related criminal records disproportionately impacted minority applicants without serving any business necessity. The complaint also accused the district of treating white employees with criminal records more favorably than black employees and applicants. The district has argued in court filings that Robinson has no case. In a 2020 motion for summary judgment, lawyers for the district argued that, quote, exclusion from employment based on criminal history and non-disclosure is a legitimate reason for failure to hire, end quote and Robinson couldn't prove a link between the district's criminal history policies and a disparate impact on minority groups. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, Robinson said he did not disclose two convictions because he believed they had dropped off his record after 10 years. The case has spent years bogged down in pretrial litigation contesting whether the case should be certified as a class action for other former job applicants, among other legal issues. Ultimately, the court agreed to let Robinson proceed with his case on behalf of all black job applicants excluded by the district, quote, without consideration to whether the policy is job-related, end quote, or for not adequately disclosing their prior convictions. The court has denied motions from each side for summary judgment, clearing the way for the case to go to trial in May of 2024. There have been no notable filings in the case since Roberts announced the change in policy last month. Because there is litigation related to this matter, on the advice of our legal counsel, we are not going to comment while it is pending, said Phil Rader, the school district's spokesperson. 
Rader reiterated that people with criminal records have always been able to apply, and a record does not automatically disqualify a candidate. Des Moines Public Schools and school districts across the country have long struggled with a lack of diversity among teachers and other staff. Two-thirds of Des Moines' roughly 30,000 students are people of color, while approximately 19% of the district's 4,887 staff members are people of color. Statewide, more than 95% of Iowa's teachers identify as white, according to a 2021 National Center for Education Statistics report. Attorney Leonard Bates, representing Robinson and the other plaintiffs, said the district's long-standing policy toward criminal records has kept many capable black candidates from joining the district's ranks. Bates said, I've heard from so many class members that they couldn't be any happier with Superintendent Roberts and his announcement. We've waited too long for this to happen. Hundreds of people, ranging from potential teachers to custodial staff, were impacted by the previous hiring practices, Bates said. The background checks disproportionately impacted black applicants who made up a small portion of the overall applicant pool. For two years, plaintiff Courtney Smith mentored students in writing and performing poetry for the district's after-school half-pints poetry program. While applying for the program's director position, she disclosed an expunged 2012 assault conviction and misdemeanor conviction for driving with a suspended license. The assault charges stemmed from a fight with a cousin. In recent years, the half-pints poetry program name was changed to SAY, S-A-Y, which stands for Serving All Youth, Rader said. Smith provided additional information about the expunged case at the request of human resources. She was not asked about her rehabilitative efforts, which included voluntary inpatient rehab and therapy for alcohol addiction and going back to school. When I got the news that HR said that I was unemployable, I felt a lot of shame that I wasn't going to be able to recover from my past, she said, that it was always going to haunt me. In an October interview with the Register, Roberts said he had already requested Human Resources hire several individuals who previously applied to work for Iowa's largest and most diverse school district. Some of the plaintiffs plan to apply for jobs with the district again, but Robinson remains cautious. Since 2014, Robinson earned a sports management degree, worked with special education students and as a substitute teacher, and is still a basketball coach. Despite these positives, he believes losing out on the Roosevelt job set his coaching career back years. He still hopes to one day coach basketball at a historically black college or university. I'm still fighting to try to get things right to this day, Robinson said. Samantha Hernandez, who wrote, co-wrote this article, covers education for the Register, and William Morris covers courts for the Des Moines Register. Switching gears to the Metro and Iowa section, tomorrow is Election Day for a lot of these local elections, so there is a Q&A on Election Day and early voting on how to register and where to cast a ballot. This is written by Victoria Reina Rodriguez of the Des Moines Register. You have questions about voting early on Election Day? We've got you covered with the Voter's Guide. 
Polls will open on November 7th from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., and you can find your precinct and polling place on the Secretary of State's website. The Iowa Secretary of State, Paul Pate, says in a news release, city and school elected officials play a critical role in our day-to-day -day lives, so it's vitally important for Iowans to make their voices heard in November's elections. Early and absentee voting started on October 18th. Those absentee ballots must be received by the time, and the polls close on Election Day at 8 p.m. to be eligible for counting. How do I register to vote, and what if I'm not registered yet here in the Iowa? It is too late to pre-register before the November 7th election, but Iowans can still register at the polls on Election Day. Just bring a proof of identity and residency, like a utility bill, paycheck, or lease. To be a registered voter here in Iowa, you must be a U.S. citizen, an Iowa resident, at least 17 years old as you turn, or as long as you turn 18 on or before Election Day, not be judged mentally incompetent to vote by a court, and not claim the right to vote in any other place. Iowans can check whether they are registered to vote in Iowa by going to the Iowa Secretary of State's website as sos.iowa.gov. How do I find my polling place in Iowa? You can find your precinct and polling place on the Secretary of State's website by entering your zip code and address for more information. When do polls open in Iowa? It's opening at 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Do I have to show an ID to vote in Iowa? Registered Iowa voters must bring an ID with them when they go to vote at a poll. Acceptable forms of identification are an Iowa's driver's license or a non-operator ID, a U.S. passport or military ID, a veteran's ID, tribal ID, or an Iowa voter ID card. In some instances, Iowans voting at the polls may need to prove their residencies as well. They can do this by bringing proof of residency if they're either voting in Iowa for the first time or if they've recently moved within the same county and have not updated their address with the auditor. If they have moved to a different county between elections, they will need to complete the election day registration process at their precincts. If someone can't prove their identity with any of these documents, there is a registered voter in their precinct that can attest to who the voter is. Both the voter and the attester will need to sign an oath. Can people who have been convicted of felonies vote in Iowa? In 2020, Governor Kim Reynolds signed an executive order restoring voting rights to most people with felony convictions once they have completed their sentences. That includes any parole or probation. Before this executive order, Iowa had been the last state in the country to ban all people with felony convictions from voting, even after the completion of their sentences, unless they applied individually to the governor's office to have their rights restored. The executive order does not apply to those convicted of homicide offenses or certain serious sex offenses that carry a lifetime special sentence of supervision. Those people can still apply directly to the governor to have their rights restored. So what if I run into problems voting here? The Des Moines Register will be tracking any issues at polling places on Election Day on November 7th. You can report any issues to the Reader's Watchdog Lee Rod at lrood at dmreg.com, and then she'll follow up. Anyone who's concerned about potential election misconduct also should report it to their local law enforcement agency. Iowa Code Chapter 39A spells out what could be considered misconduct under Iowa law. If you have any questions, you can contact your county auditor or the Iowa Secretary of State. How do I know what's on my ballot in Des Moines? 
Well, the Polk County Auditor's Office has sample ballots that's posted on its website by precinct and polling place. You can first find your precinct and polling place on the Secretary of State's website, and then scroll to find the proper ballot on the Polk County site. Dallas County also has sample ballots on its website. So where can I find election results for the Des Moines Metro on Election Day? Well, you can watch the Des Moines Register.com for Central Iowa election results as they come in on November 7th. And how can I check on the status of my absentee ballot? Iowans can track the status of their absentee ballot on the Secretary of State's website. Again, that is sos.iowa.gov slash elections slash absentee ballot status. You can also enter your full name and date of birth on that site. Voters can return an absentee ballot through the mail at a ballot drop-off box or by bringing the ballot to their county auditor's office in person. Only the voter, an immediate family member, or household member may return the ballot to the auditor's office or place it in the mail. There are exceptions for those with blindness or another disability. Those voters may designate another registered voter as a delivery agent to return their ballot. And finally, when do those mailing ballots need to be received? Absentee ballots must be received in the county auditor's office by the time the polls close on election day, again that is 8 p.m. on tomorrow, tomorrow on November 7th, to be eligible for counting. Absentee ballots cannot be delivered to a polling place on election day. If you have not returned your absentee ballot on election day, you have the following options. 1. Deliver your voter absentee ballot to the county auditor's office before the polls close on election day. 2. Surrender your absentee ballot at the polls and vote a regular ballot. Or 3. You can vote a provisional ballot at the polls if you cannot surrender your your voted absentee ballot. Lots of reminders there, Rachel. So true. Also on the Metro and Iowa front page, data, more babies dying in first year. Figures correspond with rising child poverty rate. This by Eduardo Suevez of USA Today. A teenager delivered a baby boy in fetal distress at 25 weeks gestation. Doctors tried to resuscitate the child with ventilation, cardiac compressions, chest tubes, and other methods to no avail. The neonatologist later discovered the mother had a previously undiagnosed case of syphilis. The baby's death at a Wisconsin hospital illustrates dangers babies face in their first year of life. It's also the type of scenario doctors are examining as they try to understand a grim new trend. For the first time in two decades, the number of U.S. infants who died in their first year of life is on the rise, according to provisional data from the National Center for Health Statistics, or NCHS. We don't live in a vacuum, Dr. Dennis Kostakis, Director of Neonatal and Perinatal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, said. The health of the baby is often directly related to the health of the mother. Experts consider infant mortality a key indicator of overall population health. The statistics reflect a jump in the death rate for one year, 2022. However, they raise concerns because the U.S. has failed in other key metrics. Maternal mortality rate has increased, and average life expectancy is declining. 
The NCHS report marks the first statistically significant increase in infant deaths since 2002. Before this report, the U.S. had seen a 22% decline in child deaths over 20 years, although the U.S. continually had higher infant death rates than other high-income countries. The change in 2022 data represents a notable moment for public health officials, an increase to 5.6 infant deaths per 1,000 live births compared with 5.44 in 2021. All of these increases, even the small increases, they all just add up to a general trend, report author Danielle Ely, an NCHS health statistician, said. The report used figures from the National Vital Statistics System of Birth and Death Records across 50 states and the District of Columbia for children's first year of life. The provisional figures will be finalized in a report expected next spring. However, its authors decided to release the data early to provide a warning to health care providers. The figures also correspond with the child poverty rate doubling in 2022. Another factor for providers to consider? Expanded Medicaid coverage that was available during the COVID-19 pandemic has been cut. Keeping parents and children in good health has to be a conscientious, proactive undertaking, said Georgia Michelle, interim president and CEO of the National WIC Association, a nonprofit that represents nutrition service providers agencies that implement the special supplemental nutrition program for the Women, Infants, and Children program. There needs to be investment in the safeguards in order to support families to reduce infant mortality, Michelle said. So what did researchers find? The increase in 2022 infant deaths spanned several demographic groups, with some demographic groups being spared. The largest statistical uptick in infant deaths was among babies born to Native American and non-Hispanic white people between 2021 and 2022. For indigenous infants, from 7.46 to 9.06 per 1,000 births, and for white infants, from 4.36 to 4.52. The infant death rate among children born to black people climbed from 10.55 to 10.86. Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander people also saw a small rise in infant deaths, from 7.76 to 8.5, as did Hispanic people, from 4.79 to 4.88, though deaths of infants born to Asian American women declined from 3.69 to 3.5. Additionally, there were rises in the death rates of babies born preterm at less than 37 weeks gestation, as well as the rates of infants who died less than 28 days after birth and those who died 28 days or more into their first year. There were small increases in death rates of babies born to people ages 24 and younger and babies born to people ages 30 to 39. And there was a significant jump in deaths of babies born to people ages 25 to 29. 
among the 10 leading causes of death for babies, maternal complications and bacterial sepsis saw increases in mortalities, the report said. The deaths were far higher in some regions of the country. Georgia, Iowa, Missouri, and Texas saw significant increases in infant mortality rates. Several of these states moved to restrict abortion access since the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed outlawed the constitutional right to abortion in June of 2022, though experts warned it may be too soon to gauge any correlation between restricted access to reproductive health care and infant mortality. Anytime we see it trending in the wrong direction, our alarm bells are going off, said Dr. Allison Gemmel, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health and a demographer. Gemmel has forthcoming research suggesting there was a rise in infant and neonatal mortality in Texas after lawmakers in 2021 enacted Senate Bill 8, a law banning abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected usually around six weeks of pregnancy. Among high-income countries, the U.S. spends far more on health care, yet it has the highest infant and maternal death rate, a recent study from the Commonwealth Fund found. In the U.S., maternal mortality rates have jumped in recent years, particularly among black and native people. Black people had death rates nearly three as three times as high as non-Hispanic white people. The latest figures are alarming for Dr. Ayman El Mohandas, Dean of the City University of New York's Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. But he said it is more alarming that the U.S. has been unable to significantly reduce its mortality rate below what it was in 2000 when 6.89 out of 1,000 births resulted in a baby dying in its first year. Since 2000, infant deaths in the U.S. declined by 1 per 1,000 births. The American infant mortality rate of 5.6 per 1,000 births is about three times as high as Norway's, which El Mohandas said is notable. We need to know who we are comparing ourselves to, El Mohandas said, and what infant mortality can look like. More health news this morning now. Vaping and tobacco use decline in high schools. A CDC study shows that e-cigarettes are the most popular product. This is written by Sarah Sheridan. Chernikov of the USA Today. There is a large image in the front page of the Metro and Iowa section of a teenager vaping. E-cigarettes, commonly known as vapes, have been the most used tobacco product by both middle and high school students for the past 10 years. But a new study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that high schoolers are vaping less. This decline in e-cig use by high schoolers dropped from 14% to 10% between 2022 and 2023, according to that report. The rate of e-cig use among middle schoolers did not significantly change during that same time period. The study analyzed data from the 2023 National Youth Tobacco Survey that showed that vaping is the most popular option for school-age kids. 
Although the number of high schoolers who are currently using tobacco has decreased, the rate of middle schoolers who used at least one tobacco product has increased from 4.5 percent to 6.6 percent over the past year. The director of CDC's Office on Smoking and Health, that's Deidre Lawrence Kittner, says that the decline in e-cigarette use among high school students shows great progress, but our work is far from over. Kittner continued to say findings from this report underscore the threat that commercial to tobacco products use poses to the health of our nation's youth. Among middle and high schoolers, 2.8 million students currently use tobacco products, or that's one in ten young people. The most popular tobacco product for underage users was e-cigs, with 2.13 million students reporting using vapes in 2023. Among teen vapers, 89% said they used flavored vapes, and more than half of them used disposable e-cigarettes. Disposable products were the most commonly used e-cigarette device type that's among youth. The most popular brands of disposable and cartilage products were Elf Bars, Escobars, Views, Jewel, and Mr. Fog. A look at notable demographics here: multiracial non-Hispanic students had the highest percentage of any current tobacco product use at 12.6 percent in 2023. Those students also had the highest vaping rate at 10.2 percent among all racial and ethnic groups. At 4.7 percent, Black students were more likely than other racial or ethnic groups. To use combustible tobacco products such as cigars and hookahs, the study also reported the use of middle and high schooler students who use multiple tobacco products was particularly concerning because of its association with nicotine dependence, which increases the likelihood of long-term tobacco use into adulthood. The study also cited the importance of restricting sales to underage users, increasing prices, and also banning flavored products and prohibiting indoor use of tobacco products. Thanks, Nicole. And also on the Metro and Iowa、um, section, developer talking to Trader Joe's about Ingersoll's store. This is by Addison Lathers and Philip Jones. Fans of everything but the bagel seasoning and cauliflower gnocchi rejoice. A developer says Trader Joe's is one of a couple dozen businesses in talks to open shop on Des Moines Internet Ingersoll Avenue, with the leases of Office Max and Dollar General in a shopping center on Ingersoll, just east of 28th Street, set to expire in 2025. Owner Ingersoll Properties Group plans to revamp the space and bring new businesses to the commercial corridor," said Jake Christensen. President of Christensen Development and a partner of the group, as first reported by Axios, Christensen said Trader Joe's already has demonstrated quote honest interest. We're really a long way from nailing it down. I do think we're going to get something cool, though. Christensen said, "I'm confident it'll be an improvement over what's there." Trader Joe's spokesperson Nakia Road said in an email that the grocery chain has not confirmed a new location in Des Moines, the Midwest's fastest-growing major metro area. She said, "We are actively looking at hundreds of neighborhoods across the country as we hope to open more new neighborhood stores each year." 
Christensen said he couldn't provide the names of other potential tenants, but that several retailers and some entertainment concepts with food and beverage offerings have been responsive. The 32,000-square-foot property can house up to three businesses, though Ingersoll Properties Group has made pitches to users that could occupy the whole building, he said. Trader Joe's sole metro location at 6305 Mills Civic Parkway in West Des Moines opened in 2010. There's also a location in Coralville, and residents of the Quad Cities have long lobbied for a store via social media. With an ongoing streetscaping project aimed at improving sidewalks and bikeways along Ingersoll Avenue, businesses have struggled with limited parking. The vacancy left by Office Max and Dollar General would put into play one of the corridor's largest parking lots. We haven't had a chance in the last 20 years to get the kind of interest that we are getting now for spaces of this size, Christensen said. The shopping center reset isn't the only project in the vicinity. Directly across Ingersoll, an innovative three-story mixed-use building called the Star Lofts is under construction using an eco-friendly building material called mass timber that saw its first U.S. use in a 2019 project on East Grand Avenue in the East Village. Cutler Development and Anaheim Housing, the state's largest provider of permanent supportive housing, will jointly develop the $7.2 million Ingersoll building, which replaces a deteriorated gas station. Trader Joe's, with about 560 stores, is in expansion mode, announcing this year it will add stores in Florida, New York, and New Jersey. The California-based boutique grocery chain is a subsidiary of the Germany's Aldi Nord, the sibling company of Aldi Sud, which operates as Aldi in the United States. Aldi also is expanding, announcing it plans to add 120 new locations, giving it more than 2,400 stores nationwide by the end of the year. In 2022, Aldi opened 139 stores, including its 10th Des Moines metro location in Windsor Heights. These reporters, Addison Lathers, covers growth and development for the Des Moines metro, and Phil Jones covers retail, real estate, and ragbri for the Des Moines Register. And then one short story, milk carton shortage affecting school lunchrooms, USDA says. The tiny half-pint cartons of milk served with millions of school lunches nationwide may soon be scarce in some cafeterias, with districts across the country scrambling to find alternatives. The problem is not a shortage of milk itself, but the cardboard cartons used to package and serve it, according to dairy industry suppliers and state officials. Pactive Evergreen of Lake Forest, Illinois, which bills itself as, quote, the leading manufacturer of fresh food and beverage packaging in North America, end quote, acknowledged in a statement Friday that it continues to face significantly higher than projected demand for its milk cartons. Milk is required to be served with school meals, but officials with the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service issued a memo late last month allowing districts to serve different types or sizes of milk, 
during the supply shortage or to skip milk altogether. Herrick said U.S. milk processors are working with other packaged suppliers to resolve the shortage. All right, and before birthdays, we will try and tackle Lee Roud's uh, long investigative piece about Boys Town. Rachel and I will be taking turns reading this piece, and uh, whatever we don't get through before birthdays, we will continue after birthdays and obituaries. So, all right, let's begin here. Fundraising costs grow at Boys Town, but fewer youths have been served at Story Campus. This is part of a series that's supported by the Pulitzer Center out of Boys Town, Nebraska. The Reverend Stephen Bowes towed another heart tugger just before he announced his retirement this summer, aimed at all the supporters and donors of Boys Town. The longtime president, advocate, and fundraiser in chief for the iconic youth home was marking the ribbon cutting for a new $46.5 million school in the shadow of a mammoth concrete mural etched with the image of a.、Uh, Edward J. Flanagan, who founded Boys Town more than a century ago, standing at the podium, Bose told the crowd that he had overheard two kids talking at the building's groundbreaking two years prior. Bose recalls one saying, "I wonder why they're doing all of this for us. Why are they building us this new school? I think it's because they think we're worth it." The other replied, "It was a line that could have been written for the 1938 Oscar-winning movie that made a legend of Flanagan and his home for." Orphaned and wayward boys. Since then, Boys Town Sentimental appeals for charity on behalf of the needy boys, and starting in 1979, girls in its care have been constant as its veneration for the Irish-born priest, who in 2012 became a candidate for sainthood. Direct mail solicitations, sponsored content on social media, and other marketing have persuaded thousands of Americans to donate millions. The youths placed in the nonprofit's historic home give moving testimonials. Touching Instagram reels show them graduating from high school. Letters coax recipients to help send the kids to their first summer camp at Lake Okaboji in neighboring Iowa. Boys Down promises that just a few dollars can change a child's life and help fulfill Flanagan's dream. When you donate to the Boys Town, it says in the promotional videos, you are providing healing and hope for thousands of youth who go on to live happy, productive lives. What supporters aren't told, though, while Boys Town raises more each year in donations and banquets than 99% of America's 1.37 million public charities, it also has provided a home for far fewer youths in the past five years than in decades past, and it provides relatively little specific financial assistance to the wider mix of children and families it serves. That is, despite assets of 1.76 billion dollars and substantial reserves. It also receives estimated tax breaks of $11 million annually for being a tax-exempt nonprofit. That is according to Bernetta Haynes, a senior attorney and an expert at the National Consumer Law Center. Thanks to outside spending on fundraising, returns on investments, and the generosity of strangers, those who run Boys Town and its endowment today have the potential to assist more children in need than any other nonprofit youth home in the country, or the vast majority of youth charities in the U.S. That's according to data from its financial statements and also Forbes' Top 100 Charities list last year. But the charity has kept its residential census numbers at less than half of its license capacity amid the historically high demand nationally for residential care, while plowing more and more money into fundraising on their behalf. 
Boys Town CEO Rod Kemkes repeatedly has declined the Des Moines Register's request over three months to interview him about the spending on fundraising or any changes he foresees after a major change in the organization's leadership. And since Flanagan's death 75 years ago, the Archdiocese of Omaha has had its hand in choosing each of the Boys Town's national leaders. Always a priest within its ranks, who, as Bose did, helps oversee the home, acts as an advocate for needy children and a charity, leads its fundraising, and also serves as a spiritual leader. Kemkes, a former chief operating officer at Wesk's Corporation, it is a cloud-based technology company, joined Boys Town five years ago, bringing expertise in value creation and promises of transparency to foster a strong sense of purpose and accountability within the organization. And even as Boys Town expands other programming, Barb Vollmer, its executive vice president of youth care, said it is not backing away from youth care. The heart of Flanagan's mission and the entreaty to so many Americans who have given so much over its 106-year history. Vomer said during its 18 years under Bose, Boys Town strategically expanded an array of preventative programs that includes in-home family therapy and school-based programs. As demand for those services increases, Boys Town expects to serve more youth than ever this year. That's around 28,000 with all of those programs, she said. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, workforce shortages, and changes to federal funding for child welfare, Boys Town's residential programs have served fewer kids. She did acknowledge that, but Vollmer says it plans to serve more this year, about 700 total, at its home campus in Nebraska and its smaller programs in Orlando and Tallahassee, Florida, New Orleans, and Portsmouth, Rhode Island. By years end, a total of about 500 teens and adolescents have been placed in about 50 family-style homes in Boys Town's home village that was created by Flanagan on the west side of Omaha, and five more homes will be open to placements next year. Residential programs around the country have closed after investigations found abuse of children in their care or little evidence of educating them. Respected programs struggled too, as experts and funders began questioning the benefits of long-term congregate care. But still, Vollmer insisted that Boys Town remains as committed as ever to long-term residential care for the kids who need it, most staying for 18 or 19 months on average, regardless of their ability to pay. She says that is the beauty of the endowment fund, Father Flanagan's fund for needy children. We do have the ability to provide that charity care. Overall, Boys Town gets good marks from charity watchdogs for devoting most of its annual expenses to its programming, which is much broader to date than it once was, spanning healthcare, education, and human services, as well as youth care. But while its fundraising appeals of the often focus on the youth at the Nebraska home and Father Flanagan, almost 45% to the nonprofit's national research hospital. Oh, I think I missed a line. Sorry, almost 45% of Boys Town's expenses last year went to the nonprofit's national research hospital. The hospital is largely supported by private insurance. Only 13.5% of expenses went to its programs in Nebraska and Iowa, which include the historic youth home as well as a wide mix of preventative programs in both states. About 12.7% went to its residential or preventative programs in other states. Vomer said in an October interview, she wasn't sure what Boys Town spends on financial assistance for youth in its residential programs, but she did call it a big number. 
She said ensuring money isn't the reason that kids can't get access to residential care has always been part of the Boys Town's mission. But Boys Town's consolidated financial statement shows that it spent under four and a half million dollars last year on specific assistance to youth. That's a measure of its own charity to the needy. Throughout all of its diverse programs, including residential care, that was less than one percent of its annual expenses of four hundred and ninety-nine million dollars. That assistance included almost two point nine million dollars for kids in its Nebraska and Iowa programs. And like many large charities, Boys Town touts those stamps of approval from charity trackers, such as the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance, GuideStar, now called Candid, and also Charity Navigator. And like others, it also has a separate endowment which holds the bulk of its assets. That's about 1.1 billion dollars. Boys Town's insiders run the endowment, Father Flanagan's fu- Fund for Needy Children, that provides about $46 million to Boys Town annually. The organization's consolidated financial statement showed that the endowment isn't ranked or rated by the most of the organization's consumers used to make the decisions about giving. Boys Town's consolidated financial statement, which does reflect finances and spending across all of its programs and its endowment, show it spent almost 14 times more on fundraising last year than on specific assistance to youth. The amount that spent on fundraising was almost as much as the 67 million dollars it spent on all of its youth programming in Nebraska and Iowa. That is according to investigation from the Register. Last year, Boys Town spent $63 million to raise about $167 million in unrestricted contributions, legacies, and bequests, or $38 for every $100 raised, much more than $100 than most of the nation's largest charities. This is according to 2022 financial statements. The result: donors get less bang for their charitable buck. Lori Styron, who's the executive director for Charity Watch, says they haven't been a very efficient fundraiser for years. Charity Watch has examined the finances and fundraising of Boys Towns and its endowment, along with hundreds of other high asset charities since the 1900s, or 1990s, rather. Experts caution against comparing nonprofits' overhead costs, including fundraising, because they have different funding streams and different needs. But the cost to raise a hundred dollars is a common metric that's used to calculate fundraising effic- efficiency. Organizations tally the figures slightly differently, but they all generally divide total fundraising expenses by revenue raised. In its latest analysis of high asset charities in 2020, Charity Watch calculated that Boys Town spent $45 for every $100 that it pulled in, the worst ratio of any nonprofit, with over $1 billion in assets it reviewed. In that comparison, Boys Town spent a higher proportion of its revenue on fundraising than St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Shriners Hospital, or the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, some of the other highest asset charities in the U.S. In Forbes rankings last December of the top 100 charities in the country by private donations, a list the magazine has maintained since 1999 ranked Father Flanagan's Boys Home, another name that's used by Boys Town, at the bottom for fundraising efficiency. Boys Town fares better on another charitable organization performance measure. The portion of its annual revenue spent on services to fulfill its mission, 83% of its expenses going to operations last year. Most highly efficient charities spent 75% or more on programming, according to Charity Watchdogs. 
Vollmer said during the October interview that Boys Town would provide a breakdown of assistance to the youth in its residential programs, but it did not. Boys Town stopped responding to the register's questions in mid-October when the newspaper again pushed for those answers regarding its fundraising, charity care, compensation to companies' insiders, and the criticism that it has not been an efficient fundraiser. Continuing just another few minutes with this, in 1917, Flanagan borrowed $90 to create a downtown boarding house for a handful of boys and eventually built a city of little men on an old farm site. It's a well-worn tale told again and again at Boys Town. With the backing of the Omaha Archdiocese, Flanagan endeavored to house hundreds of troubled, neglected, and abandoned youth, but he constantly struggled with fundraising. In the early, hard-scrabble years, Flanagan wrote that he hoped his hand-to-mouth charity could one day create an endowment that would make it unnecessary, quote, for us to spend a good portion of our time in the appeal and collection of funds, end quote according to Boys Town 2022 Annual Report. His fame grew as he campaigned against incarcerating juveniles, saying no boy is really a bad boy, and sought to bring them to Boys Town instead for a new start in life. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's 1938 movie, Boys Town, starring Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney, and a 1941 sequel made the charity an international sensation, allowing its leaders to take the art of raising money to unprecedented levels. In the early 1970s, after Boys Town's assets were made public for the first time, Monsignor Nicholas Wegner, the priest chosen by the Omaha Archdiocese to succeed Flanagan after his death in 1948, suggested in the spirit of Flanagan's dream that Boys Town might end its fundraising if it further built up its endowment. But as its leaders diversified its programs, Boys Town spent even more on fundraising, with timelessly saleable appeals focusing on Flanagan's legacy and needy wards. Today, Boys Town deploys more ways than ever to raise money. Visitors who stop to see the college-like home campus or go to its website are asked to give through multiple links, pop-ups, and QR codes. It paid Facebook at least $1.2 million last year in marketing fees for sponsored content. Publications and postage for fundraising cost another $50 million, its tax return says. In Nebraska, where Boys Town is a major human services provider and one of the state's most iconic institutions, no shortage of local, state, and federal political leaders sing its praises. It's a community, said State Senator Tony Vargas, a Democrat running for Congress in Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District, who has one who was one of six state legislators and other local politicians to attend the ribbon cutting for the new school in August. If it wasn't for that community, you wouldn't continue to see this model be successful. Omaha natives like 52-year-old Lily Manuel, who grew up next to Boys Town, say it remains beloved because of the good work it has done for decades protecting thousands of children who don't have family support or who need second chances. We'll pause the article there because it is time to go to birthdays.